Good evening. It's good to be with you again here in Castlereagh Fellowship. Uh, and although I've, well, I, of course, I've brought my Bible with me, but I should warn you, I'm not going to be reading just one passage of Scripture this evening. We will do that in at least one of the other dates that I'll be with you. We'll look in more depth at one passage. But really for this evening, we want to look across a number of passages and hopefully we'll be able to bring the PowerPoint up. Is that, yeah, on its way? <laughs> ah, there we go, just as I say that. Great, so um, the, the little series that I'm going to be with you for, we're looking at this theme of the Holy Spirit, who, what, and how. And the three dates when I'll be with you, I'm not with you next Sunday evening, but then back again, the following one and the one after that. So tonight we're thinking about who the Holy Spirit is, next time we'll think about what he does, and then how he leads, how do we relate to him, how does he work in our lives. So who, what, and how. And I think that that order is really quite important because sometimes when Christians talk about the Holy Spirit, or when they're asking questions about the Spirit, we want to jump straight to the things that he does, and clearly that is important. And maybe there'll be some questions and, uh, and things we need to think about in that. But if we don't understand first who he is, we could go very badly wrong when we're thinking about what he does. So tonight, our focus is the person of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's fair to say that many Christians, many people find the whole theme of the Holy Spirit quite confusing. I suspect that in this room, some of us might feel that or have felt that at times in our lives, particularly perhaps when you go to a, a church that's different from your own or a conference or somewhere and you hear people talking about the Holy Spirit in a way that is less familiar to you and you think, I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. So there's confusion about the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some of that, I think, is reflected in our language um, we've just sung a song that asked the Holy Spirit to breathe on us. I think that's a wonderful prayer for us to sing, particularly as we're coming to learn together. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But sometimes the language that people use about the Spirit, I think, can mislead us. So we, we hear sometimes about, Lord, would you pour out your Spirit or pour out your Spirit afresh? Or, or words or prayers that say, come Holy Spirit that make it sound as if he isn't already here, or perhaps even songs that might say, Spirit, change the atmosphere, which doesn't seem to be how Scripture talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, which is much more to do with changing people than it is to do with changing places. Uh, and so there are these confusing kind of terminology, even language that makes it sound as if the Holy Spirit is a, a thing that you can have more of. Lord, would you give us more of your spirit. Now, when we stop and think that the Holy Spirit is a person, which is one of the key points that I want to make this evening, that language sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? It would sound odd if I said, you know, I want to have more of my wife. It'd be much healthier if I was saying I want to know her more, I want to understand her more, I want to relate better to her, maybe even want to listen a little bit more to her from time to time. And so we've got to be careful because some of our language doesn't necessarily help us. And in fact, the other thing is that I suspect many of us, and I know there's a risk in showing this picture because I've lost some of you straight away in your head. You've just got Yoda impersonations going on. But sometimes I think we slip into almost thinking about the Holy Spirit as if he was the force in, in Star Wars. 
some kind of impersonal power that people can tap into and use to do extraordinary things. Um, now, of course, the force in Star Wars is impersonal. In fact, George Lucas, uh, when he was interviewed around the time of the first Star Wars movie, said that he had written it as a way of teaching Buddhism. Interesting point, because there are in Eastern philosophies these ideas of forces that run through nature that we can kind of tap into or control. And so sometimes we can drift into depersonalizing the Holy Spirit, reducing him to just being this power, this force that somehow we can draw on to do something. But when we do that, we are misunderstanding, we are lessening who the Spirit is. And I've heard even people who have good, solid um, doctrine and commitment to Scripture, even, for example, talking about the Spirit in terms of, of which instead of who, or it instead of he. But the Spirit is a person, and that's really important that we understand that. But the one thing I want to say as I begin this series is that I think there's an important question to ask about where we start for our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. How are we going to, together over these weeks, get a better understanding, a clear picture and what I really want to say is that we will be going to Scripture, and it's important that we put Scripture above our tradition or our experience. So what I mean by that is that all of us, you might think, well, we don't have a lot of tradition in Castlereagh Fellowship because we're a young church, but all of us, in a sense, have a tradition, a way that we tend to talk, a habit that we've built up. Um, and it's important that we allow the Word of God, the Scripture, to speak into our traditions and correct them. But not only that, all of us, of course, have experience, or we should have experience of God in our lives. That's really important. And when we think about the Holy Spirit, that should be very much part of our, our thinking that, that He is a person we are to know and to relate to and to experience. But there's a danger with that, and I think one of the causes for confusion is that sometimes people try to put words on an experience and end up using words that the Bible uses, but in quite a different way, and so we get confused. And we've got to make sure that our experience is tested against the Scriptures, okay? So what I'm saying is that the Scriptures, and this is not well, let's have the Bible and not the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people get that idea. It's as if, you know, well, Paul, you're up there. You just want to talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. But no, that the Bible is inspired by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. These are His words to us through people. And so in listening to the Scriptures, we are listening to the voice of God, and that includes the voice of the Spirit Himself. So we're learning from Him about Himself. We're learning from Him how we should think about Him and relate to Him. That's what we're aiming to do anyway over these three sessions. And as we think about the Spirit, we're thinking about one Spirit and one God. The Spirit, I've said this already, but He is a person who feels and has a, a will. Now, I realize that when I say He is a person, that in itself sometimes causes confusion. Because we can use that word person to mean a human being, and clearly he is not a human being. But in the sense that, like us, he has a personality, he is aware of himself, he is 
thinking and feeling, and he has a will. The Spirit is a person, just as the Father is a person and the Son, Jesus, is a person. And I suppose one of the reasons we find it harder to think about the Spirit as a person is because, well, we can talk to God even though we cannot see Him. We can talk about Him and to Him as Father, and because we know that there are fathers and we've maybe had a father for good or for ill, we can think of what it means to, to talk about God as Father. And of course, we can think about Jesus because He lived as a man. But it is harder to think about the Spirit in that way because we cannot see Him and because we don't usually talk about spirits, especially not, not that kind of spirit anyway, but especially not in the modern world. So one of our difficulties is living in the 21st century, we have this default to thinking that the things that we can see and touch and feel and thump are the real things in the world. That's a, an idea that really came in in the 1700s onwards. Um, and so we tend to think that the real world is the physical world around us. But most cultures in the world, for most of history, haven't thought that way. They've thought about a spiritual world as well. So one of the reasons we struggle is because the whole idea of what is spiritual instead of physical is difficult for us. But hopefully, again, we'll be helped with that. But I said that the Spirit feels and He, he has a will. So we read this in, in various places in Scripture. In Hebrews, it talks about outraging the Spirit, causing outrage, insulting the Spirit of God. In Isaiah and in Ephesians, it talks about grieving the Spirit, causing the Spirit to be grieved, to feel grief, to feel sorrow. And the Apostle Paul can talk about the love of the Spirit. And in one sense, that's the love that the Spirit brings in our lives. You probably know the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in another week. It includes or begins with love. But when we think about the fruit that the Spirit brings, we shouldn't think about the Spirit as just an, an impersonal force that causes that to grow. He grows in us what is in Himself. He loves. So the love of the Spirit is not only the love He creates in us, it is the love that He has for us and for the Father and for the Son. And uh, then when we come to 1 Corinthians 12, we read that the Spirit, and we'll talk about the gifts that He gives in a future week, but it tells us that He gives to each person as He wills, as He chooses. He has a will. So the Spirit has feelings, emotions, thoughts, and a purpose. He is a person. But He is one with the Father and the Son. So thinking about the Spirit's will, you might think, well, hang on, could that be different from the Father's will or from the will of Jesus? And the answer to that is no, because the three who are one, this is what we talk about as the Trinity, three persons in one God or one God in three persons, must not ever be separated. We mustn't think, oh, there's the Father over here and the Son over here and the Spirit over here. It's a very difficult thing to to conceptualize. We try and come up with pictures like Patrick with his shamrock. He's got one little shamrock and three leaves. Well, yes, in 
and no. Okay, you kind of, well, there's three things there, but, but those three leaves could be separated, couldn't they? They are one, but actually the three, the Spirit, the Father, and the Son, live together and they work together in a harmony that is not easy for us to understand. But He is one with the Father and the Son. And we see this in some of the names that are used of Him. In the song we sang, it calls Him Spirit of God, and that's biblical in First Peter. Peter calls Him the Spirit of glory and of God. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul calls Him the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And in First Peter 1, the Spirit of Christ. So He is the, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. He is one with the Father and with the Son. But notice the, the language there that's on the screen. It, it, it's one thing to say that He is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, but there is a sense in which there is an order amongst these three. It's, it's right and it's proper that we usually say Father, Son, and Spirit, because there's an order in which they they fulfill their role in, in God's purpose in history, isn't there? We often think about the Father more when we think of the whole of the Old Testament. And then with the Gospels, Jesus comes onto the scene. And then Jesus promises that the Spirit would come after him in a new way. So the Holy Spirit is there in the Old Testament. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But there's a sense in which he comes in fullness only after Jesus has come. And so we have one God in three persons, or three persons in one God. But it is right that we think about it in these terms, that our faith is directed to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And what I mean by that is when we pray, the normal pattern for prayer, it doesn't mean we can never pray to Jesus or the Spirit, but the normal pattern that Jesus gives us is to pray to the Father. It's the pattern that we see in the epistles as well. We do that through the Son. We come to God, to the Father, through Jesus, and we are enabled to do that by the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the ability to do that. He leads us to come to Jesus, and through Jesus we come to the Father. Now, I'll say more about what He does next time I'm with you, so, uh, but I just want to leave that little thought, that little pattern to say that there is a pattern in our Christian experience that we come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And that pattern is quite important because it does mean that although the Spirit is a person and we mustn't reduce Him to just being a force that enables us to do something, there is a sense in which He is not the focus of our faith. And He doesn't want to be the focus of our faith. He wants us to focus on Jesus because it's through Jesus that we come to the Father. And that's why you can read whole books in the New Testament that say very little or hardly mention the Spirit of God at all. Not because He's not active, not because He's not there, but because we could talk about the work of Jesus without talking about the Spirit but we should never talk about the work of the Spirit without talking about Jesus. Okay, let me say that again. You could talk about the work of Jesus without talking about the Holy Spirit. So, for example, there are places in the New Testament that say that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. We could 
change that and say the Spirit dwells in our hearts. It is through the Spirit, it is by the Spirit that Jesus lives in us. But we can never really talk about the work of the Holy Spirit without talking about Jesus, okay? Because what the Spirit wants to do is direct us to Him and to make us like Jesus. So, you can read, as you read through the New Testament, you'll see that, that there are places and even whole books that say little about the work of the Spirit. You won't find a book in the New Testament that doesn't talk about Jesus or doesn't talk about His work. That's where our focus ought to be. So it's good that we learn about the Spirit, but we've got to follow Him in keeping our focus on Jesus. He is a person who feels and has a will. He is one with the Father and the Son. In other words, he wants the same things that the Father wants. He wills the same things that the Father wills. He wants what the Son wants. He wills what the Son wants. He feels what the Father feels and what the Son feels. He has all of the attributes of God. And again, you see this in the way Scripture talks about him. He is not less than fully God. And just as we say this about the Lord Jesus, that he was fully man and also fully God, and Scripture teaches that, the Holy Spirit is also fully God. He's not somehow less than the fullness of God. He is the Spirit of holiness. We call him the Holy Spirit. He is holy like God, other set apart, without sin, without impurity. And he is the spirit of truth, just as God is truth and just as the Lord Jesus called himself the truth. The spirit is the spirit of truth. He's a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, just as God is wise and reveals himself to us. The spirit is wise. He's the spirit of glory. He is glorious just as the Father and the Son are glorious. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he is the spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He is powerful. He is loving. So you can ask yourself, well, what is the spirit like in his character? The answer to that is, well, think about Jesus. What is the Lord Jesus like in his character? What is God like in his character? Holy, truthful, wise, glorious, powerful, loving. These things are all true about the Holy Spirit too. But one thing you might notice is that when we read about these things concerning the Holy Spirit, there's a particular emphasis on the fact that he brings these qualities into our lives. So we might say, and I don't think it's a perfect way to say it, but people have written books with this title, God on the inside. He is God living in us. More about that later on and in a future week, but he dwells in us. And what he wants to do in us is to form in us the character of Jesus, to make us like Christ. He lives in us. So if you look at how Paul says it to Timothy, he says, this is what the Spirit wants to do in you. He wants to give you power to live for God and love to love God and love others. So power and the right character. Power without love would be a very dangerous thing, wouldn't it? And love without power would be a bit useless. The Spirit wants to bring both of those and how he does it is to bring self-control 
Now, that's quite important because although I'll talk about that more in a future week, the Spirit is not there to, 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 to send people out of control, okay? And again, this is one of the ways that His work has sometimes been misrepresented. People who are, who are obviously out of control, they're, they're not thinking clearly, they're not properly conscious, they kind of uh, seem to be unconscious or, or making strange sounds and noises that, like animals, for example. Well, that is not what the Spirit is about doing. He is about bringing self-control so that the power of God, His power, can work in our lives according to the character and the love of Christ. So more on what that looks like two weeks' time. But he has all of the attributes of God. And, and notice the way I've described that. The New Testament calls us both individually and as the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you think about a temple or even a house, think about, about your life as a house. One way that we might think about this is that you were created by God, by the Father, built by him. God made you, but Christ had to buy you back from sin because of your own sin. I mean, it's hard to think of a house that can rebel and go away from its owner, okay? So pictures always break down, but you get the idea. The, the house is built by God, bought by Christ, and lived in by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we're in danger because that makes it sound like they're three separate people. They are not, but if you think about the roles that they play, the Father in creation, the Son in buying us back, and the Spirit living in us, making His home in us, bringing the person and the attributes of God into our lives. Of course, the Spirit is one and the same person throughout time, just as the Father and the Son have been the same for all time, unchanging. God does not change. But we could think about the work of the Spirit in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and in the person of Jesus and then in our own lives as Christians or in the church. And the thing is this, that when we read about the Spirit in the Old Testament, and we do read about Him quite a lot, but we find that there were some people within the nation of Israel who are described as having been anointed by the Spirit or the Spirit resting on them and filled by the Spirit. Usually it's people who have a role in leadership or, or, or in doing something special for God. So, you know, kings and prophets and, and priests and judges in the book of Judges. The Spirit uh, comes upon them, He fills them, He works through them. And similarly, some people are said to be given gifts by the Spirit in order to serve God and to be given power from the Spirit, especially to speak for God and to serve Him. Okay, so some people are anointed and filled, some people are gifted and empowered, but in the prophets you have this hope and this prophecy that one day the day is coming when the Spirit will be poured out on all of God's people, not just some and not only for a short time and a limited sense, but in a much fuller sense. So you find that in a number of places in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, and elsewhere. And then we come to the person of the Lord Jesus. And we find that he has a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
He is anointed. He is filled and he is led by the Spirit. Totally, completely, fully. He's even conceived by the Holy Spirit. You've heard it at Christmas time. That's unique. So Jesus has a unique relationship with the Spirit. And he is empowered to serve and to speak. Those words are used that the power of the Spirit was upon him. And he promised to his disciples that they too would have power from the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But he is the one person who baptizes in the Spirit. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But, but John the Baptist talks about Jesus and said, I can baptize you with water. But the one who comes after me is much, much greater than me. I'm not even worthy to tie up his shoelaces. He's so much greater because he can baptize you with fire and with the Spirit of God. Now, when you think about that, the Holy Spirit is God himself. Who could possibly baptize people in the Spirit of God? No one other than God himself, the Lord Jesus, who is God. So, so, so Jesus, and we see this clearly at his baptism by John. You have the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You have Jesus standing there in the water, going under the water and back up. And you have the Father speaking from heaven and saying, this is my Son uh, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus uniquely, the only one who could baptize, not just in water, but in the Spirit, and who pours out the Spirit, and who talked about in, John, um, in John's Gospel, we, we read him talking, for example, to the woman at the well, and he tells her that the time is coming when people will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then later on in John's Gospel in chapter 6, he says that whoever believes in me will have living water springing up inside them and flowing out. And John tells us, he said this referring to the Holy Spirit, who was not yet come because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus has a unique relationship with the Spirit. He baptizes in the Spirit, he pours out the Spirit, and he causes through faith in him, through believing in Jesus, not believing in the Spirit, but believing in Jesus, the Spirit wells up within us like a spring of living water. So the uniqueness of Jesus. And then we come on to the church. And the thing is that all of these things that are said about some people in Israel are said about all Christians in the New Testament. So all Christians have an anointing. The Apostle John talks about the anointing that we have. Again, our language lets us down sometimes. And I know what people mean. And I'm not trying to, by the way, please don't anybody feel picked on if I, I haven't don't think I've heard anybody here praying for an anointing for me as I speak and so on. But it has happened in some places, and I know what people mean. But the anointing of the Spirit is not just for the preacher or the elder or the leader in the church. It is for all of God's people, and it's something that you already have. We are already indwelt by the Spirit, and we can be and should be led by the Spirit. All Christians are gifted to speak and to serve. More about that next week. And empowered to live lives of love. 
And all Christians have been baptized in the Spirit, born again, and renewed by the Spirit. So all of this language is used in the New Testament of every Christian, okay? So one of the great things that happens with the Lord Jesus is that what was only partial in the Old Testament, the Spirit empowering some people, some of the time for some things, now becomes total in the New Testament. It's the Spirit empowering all of God's people all the time for everything. Not just when they're preaching, but when they're out living their everyday lives, raising their children, going to work, looking after their, their elderly parents, talking to their neighbors, going into the shops, whatever it is, the Spirit is there to lead us and empower us. Now, we mentioned baptism in the Spirit. And I just want to finish by thinking about these two terms, baptism and filling with the Spirit. And the thing with the baptism in the Spirit, I've said this already, that it was foretold by John the Baptist when he was uh, uh, preaching. He said, I baptize with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus, after his resurrection, when he was speaking to his disciples, Acts 1, he said, John baptized with water, remember that, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, when did that happen? Those few days later was the day of Pentecost. And we read in Acts chapter 2 about uh, the Spirit being poured out using the language of, of Joel um, and empowering those Christians to speak for God. Again, more about what the Spirit does next time. But what I want you to see is that this baptism in the Spirit was foretold by John the Baptist and by Jesus. It happens on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. And then the only other reference that we have to that phrase, baptism in the Spirit, is in 1 Corinthians 12. And there the Apostle Paul, writing to a church, a group of ordinary Christians like you and me, says to them, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, now do you notice that? This is just a, an ordinary group of Christians. This is not a, a subgroup of Christians. Paul doesn't write and say, you know, some of you have been baptized in the spirit and some of you haven't. And I know which ones because in the church in Corinth, if you know anything about it, you'll know it. It was messy, just like our churches. There were some people who were doing well in their relationship with God and others who really weren't. We're getting into all sorts of mistakes. But Paul doesn't say, oh, well, the, the, the spiritual ones among you, you're baptized in the Spirit. Those ones aren't. He says, all of us have been baptized in one Spirit into one body. Now, I, I want to emphasize that because... There are, amongst Christians, different views about the baptism in the Spirit. And there are folks who will say the baptism in the Spirit is something that happens after, sometime after you become a Christian. It can happen straight after, but sometimes it doesn't happen for a long time. But I think what they tend to do when they're saying that is that they're doing what I said earlier. They're taking experiences that they have had and they're putting on that language from the Bible. They're saying we'll call that baptism in the Spirit. And it's possible that some of those experiences are experiences of the Holy Spirit. If it's an experience that 
deepens their love for God and their appreciation for the Word of God and, uh, and moves them forward in their pursuit of holiness and their service for God and their courage to speak for Him, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not the baptism in the Spirit. The baptism in the Spirit, I think, when we put these bits together, is another way of referring to what it means to become a Christian. Paul says that this is how you got to be in the body of Christ, by being baptized in the Spirit. So somebody who hasn't been baptized in the Spirit isn't in the body of Christ. And if you're not in the body of Christ, you're not a Christian, okay? So unless this is someone, and it's possible again, that somebody might have thought they were a Christian and then actually became a Christian, got converted, and if they call that their baptism in the Spirit, they're probably right, okay? But, but I think what we're saying is that the baptism in the Spirit is something that happened to the church in Acts 2. And when a person gets included in the church in Christ, they are included in the baptism in the Spirit. Do, do you see what I mean? Okay, so, so the baptism in the Spirit is, is, is something that happens or becomes applied to you, real in your life, when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, someone might say, but hang on a second, in the book of Acts, there are a few other groups of people who, who seem to get the Holy Spirit later, not when they were saved. Like the Samaritans in Acts 8, Philip preached to them, and they believed, and they were baptized in water, but they didn't receive the Spirit until Peter and John came from Jerusalem and prayed for them and laid hands on them. Or Cornelius, the Roman centurion in his household in Acts 10, Peter preached to them, and they believed, and then they received the Spirit, and they spoke in tongues and, and praised God, a bit like Acts 2, and Peter then said they should be baptized in water, because he saw them, them speaking in tongues or heard them. Or the disciples of John the Baptist, who Paul met in Ephesus in Acts 19, they believed, and they were baptized in water, but they didn't receive the Spirit, and they too spoke in tongues at that time until Paul laid hands on them. So, there we go. Is that contradicting what I've just said? Well, a couple of things. We need to be careful that the book of Acts is not describing the church the way it is when it's fully formed, but the beginnings of the church. It's a transition, if you like, from the ministry of Jesus to what we read about in the epistles. So by the time of Corinthians, Paul can say to a group of Christians, you've all been baptized in the Spirit. So we can't look at Acts and say, well, this is the way it should be today in the church. But if you look at those groups of people, what do you have? You have Samaritans, and then you have Gentiles. And you might remember that right back at the beginning of, of Acts, when the Lord Jesus said, that the Spirit will come and empower you. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, what happens in Acts 2? Pentecost is in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. So Acts 8, you have Samaria and the end of the earth. That's the Gentiles like you and me. Well, that's what happens in Acts 10. So do you see what I'm saying? You're, you've got these stages of the gospel going out and the church growing to include Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Just as Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8. 
That's why those are special occasions. And what you'll notice is that each time it was the apostles who were the witnesses to Jesus and to the fact that the Spirit had come to this group of people in the same way that it came to the Jews in Acts 2. So in Samaria, Philip is not an apostle. He goes and preaches there, but it's Peter and John who have to come up from Jerusalem to lay hands on those people for them to receive the Spirit. They are the apostles that Jesus appointed as his witnesses. I know we talk about ourselves as the witnesses of Jesus. That's not a bad thing. We want to witness for him. But in Acts, when Luke uses the word witness, he only uses it about the apostles, the people who saw the risen Jesus, eyewitnesses of Jesus. So it's important, if you think about that, there's not going to be one church in Jerusalem and then a, a Samaritan church up the road. It's one church, one Holy Spirit, one unified body, Samaritans and Jews brought together. And the ends of the earth, the Gentiles brought together in one church. Peter is the one who is there in the house of Cornelius. But what about Ephesus, <laughs> the disciples of John the Baptist? Well, I think, and here I'll just be careful, because that's a very unusual occurrence. It's the only other time we read about the Spirit being given to a different group of people. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is because John the Baptist, maybe we don't realize this, but John the Baptist was, was really a, a, quite a significant figure in the first century, so much so that he had disciples right over in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And so it was really important that those people who had kept following John, but if you read about that, they're not like the other groups because they hadn't yet believed in Jesus. They hadn't been baptized in the name of Jesus. They'd only been baptized by John. When they received the Spirit, it's at the same time as they're believing and being baptized. But I think the other thing that's going on is that God is showing us and Luke is showing us that Paul is an apostle just like Peter. And that's quite important for Luke in the book of Acts. If you read about Paul's miracles and Peter's miracles in Acts, you'll see that they follow the same order, same pattern, same kind of miracles, because Luke wants us to be sure that Paul, even though he wasn't one of the 11, is an apostle just like them. Okay, so this is one of God's ways of affirming that, that Paul lays hands on those people and they receive the Spirit. Now, I just want to finish with this very briefly. There is this truth that if you are a Christian, you have been baptized in the Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. But there is language that we can use to talk about knowing the Spirit better and letting Him have more influence in our lives. The language of filling. So we do read in, the, in Acts, one of the things that happened was they weren't just baptized in the Spirit, they were filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak. When people are filled with the Spirit, they have courage to speak for Jesus. That's one of the hallmarks. But it's not just people, it's also churches that can and should be filled by the Spirit. So when Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, don't get drunk on wine, not a good idea in church, but be filled with the Spirit and address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. Do you see that? Speaking to each other about Jesus. We need to be filled by the Spirit because we need to become like Jesus and we need to have courage to speak for Jesus. So go back with me to the picture of the house. 
the house that is your life, built by God, your creator, bought by Jesus, your savior, lived in by the spirit of God. The way I think about this, and I've thought about it for many years like this, again, it's not perfect like any picture, but it's, it's like when, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in the front door of your house, okay? And, and honestly, sometimes that's where I want to leave him. He's kind of in there, but he, he doesn't, he's, oh, I don't want him to go into that room. That's the living room. That's where I just want to put my feet down and forget about all this God stuff and just watch whatever's on the telly. I don't want him to go into the bedroom because that's kind of private as well. And I don't want him to go into my kids' rooms, you know. I don't want him to go into the kitchen. Or... Now, think about that. Think of your life as, as a place with different rooms. There's church. Well, we'll let the spirit in there, you know, perhaps. <laughs> and then there's work. And then there's my marriage or my relationship. My parenting or my relationship with my parents and then there's you know all of these different things in our lives there's my attitude to money does the spirit get into that room and I think what we're talking about when we're saying that we we need to be filled by the spirit is that we want to throw open all the doors and say access all areas now you can talk about that in other language you could say I want God to have control over my whole life I want him to to, to, to rule over everything. I want his kingdom to come in its fullness, his will to be done. I want Jesus to be Lord of, over everything in my life. Or I want the spirit to fill everything and have access to everything. I don't want there to be any part of me that he cannot speak into. Any part of me where I'm not listening. Any part of me that I think that's just my wee bit that I'll keep for myself. So maybe that's something we could take away and in a couple of weeks' time, we'll pick that up and say, what would it mean if we opened all the doors to the Spirit of God? What is it that He wants to do in those rooms? What change does He want to bring? But just as we finish this evening, ask that question. Does the Spirit have access to your whole life? Is there something that you're saying, I don't want to give that over. I don't want to give that up. I don't want to let go. I didn't say this at the beginning, but I've been hemmed in up here, you know, this, this, chair's, this chair's been put here for a purpose, because people know I wander, and I'm on camera, and they don't want me to wander off screen. Some of you think that might be better if it was off screen. But don't do that with the Spirit, okay? It's okay to hem me in, and I need hemmed in sometimes, but the Spirit, no. Let him have full reign. Go where he will go, and see what God will do in your life if you allow him to. So let me pray for us as we finish. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings your love and your power into our lives, who leads us to be self-controlled. Father, we need him. We need him in every part of our lives. We need him to guide us, to teach us, to change us. And Father, as we begin this series, I pray that each one of us would throw open the doors of every part of our life and say, Lord, would you do what you will in us? Father, would you have your way? Holy Spirit, would you work in every part? We thank you for this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and with us. Help us to listen to him and to respond in obedience, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.